It is not the men who validate the message, it is the message who validates the men. The succession of truth that the apostles exhorted us to pass from one generation to another like an Olympic torch is their doctrine, the body of truth delivered to the saints once for all. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a study of the book of 2 Timothy, and today's message is called Laboring for Christ. As believers, if we are working diligently for Jesus Christ, he tells us that we're storing up treasure in heaven. And as Pastor Brogi looks at the first six verses of chapter 2, we'll see that the Apostle Paul, knowing that his time was at hand, is looking for laborers to carry on the mission of sharing the gospel. We've been working our way through this pastoral epistle. It's a very moving book because it's the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul that he writes just before his beheading in Rome. And as you read through this epistle, I don't want you to forget that he's in a dirty, dark, dank dungeon about ready to meet death. His labors are over. He could say, I've finished the course. In a very tender and personal way, this aging apostle pours out his heart to Timothy to prepare him after he's gone. Of course, God has him write Timothy, not just for Timothy's sake, but for our sake. We will study next time or a few times from now in chapter 3 that he'll look down the corridors of time to what he calls the last days, to our day. And just as there was moral and theological confusion in Timothy's day, it abounds in our day. And so Paul wants to strengthen Timothy, and he wants to strengthen us. And so I've entitled this morning sermon's message, Laboring for Christ. 2 Timothy 2, we'll read the first seven verses. We'll give our attention, though, just to the first six. Notice you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses these entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, in our opening study of this epistle, we've learned that the theme that runs all the way through it, mentioned in every chapter, is that of the gospel. Paul is preoccupied with writing to Timothy about the gospel. And again, keep in the forefront of your mind that his work as a preacher, as an apostle, is virtually over. He's in chains and he's about to die. For over 30 years, he has faithfully preached the gospel. He's defended the gospel. He's planted New Testament churches, and he's consolidated those churches in their faith. And so Paul could rightly say, I have fought the fight. I have finished the course. And all that awaits for this dear saint is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to him and all who love his appearing. He's currently a prisoner. He's about to become a martyr. They will behead him there in Rome. And under the shadow of execution, he's concerned about the fate of the gospel. The question looming in his mind is, what would happen to the gospel 
after he was dead and gone. Nero, of course, is bent on destroying Christianity from without. The apostates of the day are determined to destroy Christianity from within. And so Paul wants to know who will sound the battle cry after he is gone. Now understand, from a divine point of view, this man knows that God is sovereign in his church, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But he also recognizes that God uses courageous men, men and women, who will stand for what's right. And so he wants Timothy to stand against all falsification. Look now in verse 1. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now that falls on the tails of what we've just read, on the tail of what we just read last time together in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1 and verse 15, all who in Asia are turned away from me. The church in Asia deserted Paul. One bright exception, of course, Onesiphorus. Paul was a man condemned for death. To identify yourself with Paul probably would mean to identify yourself ultimately with death. And so in this chapter, Paul wants to urge Timothy in the midst of this landslide of defection to stand his ground. And so really in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, he gives a word of exhortation that becomes really an introduction to the teaching that is about to follow. And there are three introductory words of exhortation. First, he encourages Timothy to be strong. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong, Timothy. You don't need to be one of the moral weaklings of the day. You need to stand on firm ground. You need to fight against the prevailing mood. Never mind what anyone else is saying or doing or thinking. Never mind how weak or shy you may feel. Never mind the fact, Timothy, that some will despise your youth. Be strong. That's his first exhortation, but it goes further. Second, Paul's call for Timothy to be strong in grace. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It would be an absolutely absurd exhortation for Timothy to be strong, really useless, unless it was accompanied with the phrase that follows, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is not a summons for Timothy to grit his teeth and to muster up strength in himself to go against the prevailing tide of apostasy. No, he was to find his strength in Christ Jesus. He was to find his resources in the Lord. Christ himself promised us, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. With him we can do everything, apart from him we can do absolutely nothing. Now, it's interesting to see this word grace that he uses here in verse 1 because we already saw it back in chapter 1 and verse 9 in reference to our salvation. But here he's using it in reference to our service, in reference to our sanctification. God's free, unmerited favor, his undeserved kindness, his grace is what Timothy needs to stand strong. Now, he moves to a third dimension of this word of encouragement. First, be strong. Second, be strong in the grace that is found in Christ. But third, Timothy, be strong for your ministry calling. He is to be strong for his ministry calling. Now, verse 2 is linked to verse 1. Notice, in the things which you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
Again, remember, he's in prison. He's awaiting execution and is preoccupied with the fate of the gospel. And so Paul wants Timothy to understand the process by which the deposit, the gospel, the treasure, all synonymous terms in this epistle, the process by which God passes the torch from one generation to the other. In chapter 1, he said, guard the gospel, whatever the cost may be. But he's not content with Timothy simply guarding the truth of the gospel. He does not want him to simply preserve the gospel. He also wants him to pass it on. And if disloyalty in the church would make this an absolutely key and crucial command, and if Paul's impending death was also made it a crucial demand, then verse 2 must be properly understand, understood because it's the process by which you and I are here today as believers. We're here today because of a chain of Christians through 21 centuries who have done precisely what Paul exhorted Timothy to do. Now, what we find here really in verse 2 are three stages, actually four that are envisioned in the context. He's speaking here of four stages by which truth is relied. Now, the first stage has already been spoken of in chapter 1. Paul was given the gospel from Christ directly, as every apostle was. He reminds the church at Galatia, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was not preached by me, which was preached by me, is not according to man. That is to say, it's not man's gospel. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul was given, he was given directly by Christ. He didn't get it secondhand. And Paul, who received it from Christ, in turn gives it to Timothy. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. I received it from Christ, and you, Timothy, received it from me. So the gospel went from Christ to Paul to Timothy, and then he adds, in the presence of many witnesses. Now that's a very important phrase, especially in the first century, where you have pre-Gnosticism, Gnosis meaning knowledge, these people who said they had knowledge, but it came directly from God in secret form. And so Paul says, no, Timothy, what you received from me didn't come in secret. Anyone can test your teaching, Timothy, because your teaching for me came in the presence of many witnesses. Now, the cults typically give it in secret. These people have a revelation from God that no one else has had that's extra biblical. One, some time ago, I wanted to go into a Mormon temple only to discover that I wasn't allowed in. The only time they'll let you in is before they officially consecrate it from pagans like me. But once it's open, officially, no one can go in and learn and hear what's taught in that place unless you are within a certain status of Mormonism. Well, I want to tell you true Christianity is done in the presence of many witnesses. It's not handed down privately, it's handed down publicly. And that's how God works today. A pastor takes the truth of the apostles found in Scripture and he teaches it to his congregation. And in every congregation there are young Timothys whom God is calling into full-time Christian ministry, as we see God doing here. I think just in the last 18 months of the five men that God has called, Peter Newell, who is studying 
up at CIU, Bill Fowler at Dallas Seminary, Michael Hoyt, one of our young Marines who's now at Dallas Seminary, Cornelius Gray, who goes there in the fall, and then Cliff Hammond recently called planning and preparing to go there in a year. That's how God has always done it. He's always called men into the ministry when the Word of God is taught publicly. And of course, you can test this pastor's preaching and any pastor's preaching to see if it's accurate to what Paul said by simply checking it according to Paul's Word. That's why every pastor ought to preach with an open book, with an open Bible. So the truth went from Christ to Paul to Timothy, and what Timothy heard, he was in turn to pass on to faithful men. And the things which you've heard from me and the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men. Paul has here in mind future pastors who would be ministers of the Word of God whose chief function it would be to teach. We need men today. Now, we need women. Don't discount that truth. We need women who will stand for Christ. But Paul has men in view here, men who will serve in the pastorate, who will be called of God to lead his local church. And the Christian pastor, like the Jewish elders in the synagogue, had a responsibility for passing on truth. And the fundamental requirement in stewards is trustworthiness, and so they must be faithful men. And these faithful men, the Bible says, must be able to teach others also. If they have been called of God to the ministry, then these are people who have an ability to teach. Bring up the next slide, please. They are able to teach others also. You know, that's a requirement for a pastor according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to see it later. Paul will echo that truth in this uh, chapter 3 and verse 24, that it's also a qualification for a pastor there. So here are the stages. God's truth from Christ to Paul to Timothy to faithful men who have the ability to take it to another generation, others also. That's the succession. That's what Protestant evangelicals refer to as apostolic succession. Now, there are some today who believe that there are men who are apostles, living apostles, who had a church. And they believe from one pope to another that the apostleship has been passed down. But I want to remind you, the line of faithful men is in reference to their teaching. The succession is not found in the men who teach, uh, that is, in the, in the men who teach it, but in the message that is of apostolic truth that has been passed from one generation to the next. It is not the men who validate the message. It is the message who validates the men. The succession of truth that the apostles exhorted us to pass from one generation to another like an Olympic torch is their doctrine, the body of truth delivered to the saints once for all. So this, then, is the succession of authority, not done through the laying on of hands, not done by a man who sits in a particular office, but the biblical faith as it's transmitted, the apostolic faith found in the 27 books of the New Testament. And in turn, those 27 books affirm the 39 books of the Old Testament. Biblical truth, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. So having given that introduction through three exhortations, Paul now wants to enlarge upon that encouragement with six metaphors. 
Six metaphors that really picture for us a wide variety of truth. Now, we'll look at the first three today, and in subsequent weeks, we'll look at the next three. Today, we want to focus on the metaphors of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And these three were certainly favorites of Paul, and they really emphasize in many ways the same thing, though differently, and that is, is that the Christian who serves the Lord God must be called to hard labor that is strenuous, and it will involve sacrifice in suffering. So let's consider the first metaphor. First, the illustration of the dedicated soldier. Notice verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul often uses military illustrations in his letters because his prison experiences gave him ample opportunity to observe Roman soldiers and to make parallels between their lives and their dress and our lives in our dress. He spoke of the warfare, the spiritual warfare that the Christian faces and how we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ to break down fortresses. He spoke of our spiritual dress, that is our spiritual armor that we must put on and the weapons of our warfare that we are to use. And he speaks here of a good soldier because of his dedication, because of his concentration, because of his willingness to suffer. Many people have the false notion that the ministry is a soft job. And sometimes preachers are the butt of their jokes that suggest that they are lazy, that they work one hour a week, and that they should be ashamed to take their salaries. And I suppose on occasion over the decades, I have met a few preachers that are lazy and seemingly only work an hour a week. But a dedicated pastor today will spend as much time in preparing for the pastorate as a physician will in preparing to be a doctor and almost now as much cost, not to practice physical surgery, but spiritual surgery. And if he really does his job well, he's going to have to do it at great sacrifice, like a soldier in the army. Let me remind you, just parenthetically here, that whenever you study an analogy or a metaphor from Scripture, you need to only draw from that analogy or metaphor what is specifically taught. In other words, you could not say that since we have the analogy of a soldier and that a Christian is likened to a soldier, that that must mean that everything that is true of a soldier is true of a Christian. And so since a soldier, especially um, an officer, you know, would, and those enlisted would wear a uniform, and since he is speaking contextually here of a pastor, that we too ought to wear uniforms. Now, some have made that conclusion from this passage. But we must only draw facets of the analogy that are directly taught in the context or that other scripture itself gives me about an athlete or a farmer or a soldier as we look at this first one. It's very important not to argue from the analogy anything that's not taught, but you simply ask what is plainly taught in the analogy and what do I draw from it in my own life? Now, in terms of the dedicated soldier, Paul draws three conclusions for us. First, the dedicated soldier is willing to suffer. The dedicated soldier is willing to suffer. Notice again verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
Soldiers who are in active service do not expect a safe or easy time, and things have not changed in 2,000 years. Watching some of our troops recently in this Middle East war, it was obvious that these men were not surrounded by luxuries. They do not go to bed at night in a comfortable bed or in an air-conditioned room. Their tent at best, often the ground is their bedroom. Their kitchen quite often is a meal out of a can, and they are subject to windstorms and to high heat. Hardship, risk, suffering, those are all matter of course for a soldier. Those are part and parcel of his calling. In the same way, the Christian who wants to do anything for God should not expect that it will be easy. He must take his responsibility seriously, and if he takes it seriously to carry the gospel to the lost world, he will experience opposition and suffering. Second, not only must a dedicated soldier, not only is he willing to suffer, I also learned from the analogy that the dedicated soldier avoids entanglements. He avoids entanglements. We read here in verse 4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, the dedicated soldier leads a focused life. He's not only willing to suffer, but he's willing to concentrate on the job that's before him. That's what makes a good soldier. Those are the men who traditionally go through the ranks. They not only have a willingness to sacrifice, but they have a focus to concentrate. The New English Bible says no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The New Living Translation puts it, and as Christ's soldier... Do not let yourself become tied up in the affairs of this life, for then you cannot satisfy the one who has enlisted you in his army. J.B. Phillips renders it, A good soldier does not get himself entangled in business. The New English Bible says he wants to be holy at his commanding officer's disposal. He must avoid the entanglements of everyday life. If he is to be on active duty, he frees himself from civilian affairs and gives himself totally to his soldiering in order to, to please his superior officers. During the Second World War, this nation pulled together to protect our freedom. And my parents used to remind me that they had a slogan, and it was, there is a war on. And they would often say that to one another in order to encourage self-sacrifice, self-denial, to abstain from innocent pleasures because there was a national emergency. Now, the Christian in like manner who lives in the world cannot avoid the ordinary duties of home or the community that God has called us to live in as a part of a vital witness for him. But we must, nor must we forget for that matter, as Paul has already told Timothy in his first letter, that God also richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So what is forbidden is not being able to enjoy the legitimate pleasures that God gives, nor carrying out our daily responsibilities. But what is to be forbidden and avoided is what Paul here calls entanglements. That is, anything that would keep us from fighting Christ's battles. An entanglement may not necessarily be sinful in and of itself. It could actually be something that is perfectly innocent. 
but something becomes an entanglement if it keeps you from sharing the gospel or serving God's people or some involvement in the kingdom of God. And I know Christians in our own fellowship who are so entangled in the affairs of everyday life, they have no time for the church. They have no time about furthering the kingdom of God. Now, while this counsel applies to all Christians, contextually, it especially applies to the Christian pastor who is to devote himself to teaching and tending Christ's flock. The pastor must stay as an example to the flock, especially focused in studying the Word of God and sharing his faith in his prayer life and in his preaching life. He cannot get distracted in the entanglements of this life, and neither can you. Now, here then is the first metaphor. We are to be like soldiers in Christ's army. Like dedicated soldiers, we must be willing to suffer. Like dedicated soldiers, we must be willing to focus, to concentrate, to consider the one who has enlisted us. And if we are to please the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who by his own blood enlisted us in his great commission army, then there will be some suffering, there will be some sacrifice, and there must be some focus. Now in verse 5, he gives us the second analogy, the analogy of the law-abiding athlete. Notice, and also, if anyone competes as an athlete, He does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Paul now turns from the Roman soldier to the competitor in the Greek games. Now, in our day, as in their day, every sport has its rules. I remember some years ago, the Boston Marathon, and I remember one particular lady, and they said, Rosie has taken first place. I can't remember her last name. It slips me this morning. And, of course, she was the first woman to take first place, the first woman to come over the line, and in record time, only to discover that shortly after the race began in Hopkinton, Mass., she got in a taxi and drove all the way to Wellesley College, and at Wellesley College, she jumped back in the race and came in first. And so, of course, she was disqualified. The same has always been true, and, of course, in the ancient world, As we know, the rules applied not just to the race itself, but also even to the preparatory process. No athlete would receive the prize unless he competed according to the rules. And of course, the prize was not a gold or silver or bronze medal, but the coveted evergreen wreath that would be worn on the head. No athlete could wear that wreath unless he competed according to the rules. So I want you to notice first that the law-abiding athlete keeps the rules. He keeps the rules. Paul plainly says he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. No rules, no wreath. That was the order of that day, and it's the order of our day. There are no shortcuts in Christian ministry. God wants us to follow all the rules, but the reward is great for those who are faithful. And we'll take a closer look at this next time as Pastor Brogy continues his message entitled, Laboring for Christ. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 2TM3. 
Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at Laboring for Christ. Join us then when again we search the Scriptures. Thank you.